I have to confess, Sister Amy, that was a beautiful rendition of A Mighty Fortress. And, and, and I, I have to also confess I was a little bit on edge because uh, those of you that know uh, Miss Jan, uh, the pastor's wife, uh, she, knowing that she comes from an extensive Lutheran background, uh, and her deep love for Martin Luther and, and of course, his writings, his, his songs. I was almost halfway expecting her to be doing cartwheels down the aisle uh, as you were really bringing it to a crescendo, but thank goodness she's in the nursery. So uh, I tease her about that, but wonderful. What, I think about, you know, the Reformers like John Calvin and Martin Luther and, and, and what great men of faith and, and, and how much we owe to them for their dedication to the Word of God. And, and the boldness with which they stood against the, the errors of the, of the church at that time and, and the prices that they paid and the sacrifices they made. And it's, you know, it's very much akin to what we'll see today as we look in the book of Acts, uh, as we continue to look at the life, the ministry of the apostle Paul. And, and my goodness, was there anyone, you know, other than the Lord Jesus Christ who, who suffered more for the cause of the, uh, of the gospel? And we see that over and over and over as we open up the Word of God. And this morning, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the uh, uh, book of Acts, uh, the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 19. And, and as you're turning and uh, making your way over to the book of Acts, or you may already be there, uh, if, if you want to just stop and pause at chapter 1 or back up to chapter 1, because oftentimes it, it, the springboard for the, the Acts of the Apostles and the beginning of the church uh, really tie back to uh, Jesus' last appearance with His disciples prior to His bodily ascension into heaven to be there at the right hand of God the Father. You may recall that Jesus was saying to them, and, and everybody knows Acts 1-8, you know where Jesus says, And you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And, and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. But the thing I want you to just focus on is something that so often I overlooked and I think maybe we as a church overlooked. The fact that Jesus was saying something to them, offering them a promise that they were going to be embarked upon a mighty mission. And that was to take the gospel to all the areas of the world. But what Jesus said to them in that promise was... The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you in a way that you've never experienced Him. And in doing so, you will be endued with power, not just manpower, not just order. You are going to be filled with a power source like you've never, ever encountered. It is the very power of the Spirit of God. Now, Granted, I would probably be like those guys. I'm sure they were looking at Jesus and like a mule looking at a new gate. That's an old country expression. Like, duh. What, what did he say, Andrew? <laughs> what, what did he say, James? Yeah. What, what does he mean? Well, it wouldn't be long. It wouldn't be long they'd understand on that day of Pentecost. When indeed the Spirit of God fell down as Peter and, and the other disciples are gathered together in that upper room, the Spirit of God, as they were praying and waiting, came down like a mighty rushing wind, tongues of fire settling upon those early disciples and, and, and enduring them with power. Oh my goodness, such power that Peter, the very one that denied Jesus three times when Jesus was on trial, the same Simon Peter would stand before throngs of people, including many of those that were Jesus' accusers and executors, and he would preach a powerful, fiery message, message of conviction so that many of them repented and came to Christ. That was power, folks. I'm sure Peter was thinking, man, where is this coming from? And it was the Spirit of God. Well, the, the thing for us to remember is that all through the Acts of the Apostles, as, as these men and women of God are moving forth and, and sharing the gospel and spreading the gospel, the power of God was doing great and wonderful things to facilitate the advancement of that early church. Remember, remember, when the church first started there in Jerusalem, the only Christians in the world the only Christians in the world were within the city limits of Jerusalem. But you see, Jesus had told them, you're not going to stay there. You're not going to stay there. Because you'll be going out to Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth under the power 
of the Spirit of God. You know, when Peter was preaching that powerful message in Acts chapter 2, in verse 22, he made reference to the fact that God used His power in the life of Christ. What was it that drew the multitudes to Christ? What was it that convinced so many people uh, who had never heard Him before preach with such authority? What was it that, that was causing the multitudes to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, this is not an ordinary rabbi we're listening to. This is not an ordinary teacher we're listening to. This man works miracles. He's feeding thousands with just a few fishes and loaves. He's healing the blind, the lame. Hey, he's even raising the dead. What power? You see, the power of God authenticates the message of the servant of God. Even in the life of Christ. And it didn't stop there because it went on in the life of those early disciples. Now, I want you to hold your place in Acts chapter 19 because we're going to get there sooner or later. Uh, but uh, And I'm very aware, uh, aware of the fact that many of you, now all of you, lost an hour last night. Now, don't, you know, those of us locals shouldn't feel too bad for ourselves because, you know, uh, Dr. Altry, I believe you and, and, and your wife, y'all lost an hour coming out here, too. So, you see, they're ahead of us. So, if anybody falls asleep at church, that'll be them, okay? Not that they will, but anyway. But, but listen, listen to the writer of Hebrews. Uh, in Hebrews in chapter, and I'm going to get back to our text. In Hebrews chapter 2, listen to what he says there in verse 3 and 4. He says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard Him. Now listen to verse 4. God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. God worked miraculously. God worked through powerful signs to authenticate the message. But you know, as we look at that at the text today, and you're going to see examples of the power of God to, to authenticate the message of the gospel, to authenticate the messenger, Paul, to authenticate the, the early church, to say this is the real deal. You're going to see that there are counterfeits too. That was the case back then. That was the case now. You'll find that it, it, people are always trying to duplicate the things of God so as to detract people away from the Lord. It's nothing new. In fact, it, it, I don't typically give titles to my messages because they're not noteworthy. But anyway, but but I couldn't help to, to say if I was entitling the message today, it would be simply a ruse, a riot, and a resurrection. So you can just hang on to that. That's where I'm headed. And, and hopefully we'll have time to do that. So, so we're going to be focused on the ruse first there. But in chapter 19, if you look with me in verse 11, right out of the gate, look what Luke tells us. And, and this is talking about Paul and his ministry there on his third missionary journey as they're in Ephesus. He says, now God, and that's underline that. If you write in your Bible, you know, make sure this is not Paul's power. It's not the church's power. It's the power of God. Whenever you see demonstrations of miraculous, divine, supernatural power, it's God. Now, God worked unusual, and maybe in your translation, you may pick up on Luke's word there, extraordinary, extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. You know, there's nothing new about We've seen God do miraculous things and powerful things in Paul's life and ministry. I was thinking back in, in chapter 13 even, in verse 8 through 11 there, where Paul encountered a sorcerer, Elimus, And he was, he was trying to disrupt Paul's work and ministry and sharing with the, the proconsul that, in that area. And Paul, the power of the Spirit of God enabled Paul to call the sorcerer's hand. Not only that, but the power of the Spirit of God, if you may recall from that chapter 13, enabled Paul to pronounce a curse upon him that he would go blind. That'll get your attention. But that was not the only time, because as we followed along in the, the ministry of Paul, we know in chapter 14, verse 3, that Luke says they were doing many signs and wonders, and it was getting the attention of the people. You may recall in chapter 14, when Paul and Barnabas on that first missionary journey found themselves in a very pagan city of Lystra. No, no, no Christian witness there. Very little Jewish witness for that matter, but it was a very pagan and, 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 and unbelieving area. And, and the Spirit of God enabled Paul to heal a, ma- a man who was lame. 
And it really got the attention of the people so much so that they wanted to worship, you remember, Paul and Barnabas as if they were Roman gods or something like that. So the Spirit of God has been working in great ways in the life of Paul. And you know what? As we look here in chapter 19, and look at verse 12. After Luke has made this great, outstanding introduction there, how God is doing new, extraordinary, unusual miracles. Look at verse 12. This is interesting. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body, talking about Paul, to the sick. And the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. You say, well, wait a minute. Maybe there's something to that TV evangelist who told us if we don't support their ministry and send them a check, they'd send us that little prayer cloth. That all you had to do is lay it on your broken arm or on that disease or whatever it was, or cast out demons out of the in-laws or whatever. You know, it had special powers. Folks, newsflash, newsflash, the miracles and signs that we're seeing are confined to the apostolic age. They are there for a purpose. And even Paul didn't say... You set up a, a booth in Ephesus and say, come buy your anointed handkerchiefs. Come buy my sweat. Now, they, these are not special claws or anything. They, Paul, remember, was a tent maker. If you're making tents, you're working with your hands and it's in the summertime, you're sweating, right? And so he's had these handkerchiefs he's wiping his sweat with. Or maybe he had a band tied around his head and he lays it aside. And Paul probably wondering, hey, where did my handkerchief go? Where, where did my sweat band go? I know I just laid it there. People were so convinced Having heard the power of Paul's message, having seen the power of the Spirit working in, they said, this man's God is the real deal. He's got, he's got uh, no doubt, he's got connections with real power. And they just reasoned because they're very superstitious people. Ephesus was a very pagan city, and it was uh, influenced by many mystery religions. And so, you know, superstition ran rampant. And so, there's one person probably told another, hey, I bet if we could just get his handkerchief. We could take it home and heal mama. <laughs> uh, if I could just get that, you know, sweat man, you know, we could, we could heal that uh, demon possessed boss man or, or whatever, you know. And, and, and you know what? The amazing thing is, though Paul was not promoting it, he wasn't chastising them either because you know what God was doing? God saw the imperfect faith of these people. They knew where the source of the power was. They didn't understand the conduit being Paul. They were thinking it could be other things he touched. But the fact is, they understood that they were seeing the real deal. And even if they could get their hands on a handkerchief or a sweatband or whatever and take it, they believed. And God was allowing them to be encouraged even by that. Now, that's not unusual. Because you may remember how the woman that came to Jesus in the Gospels and she had an issue of bleeding. You remember what she was reasoning to herself? She wasn't saying, now if I can get him face to face and dialogue with him, if I can get him to lay his hands on me and bless and heal me, I'll be okay. You remember what she said? If I, if I can just reach and touch the hem, just touch the hem of his garment. What faith? What faith? Because she understood the power. She understood Jesus, but she just thought, well, hey, if I just touch his garment, that's all it will take. Guess what? She was healed. And then not only that, you may recall back in Acts chapter 5 and verse 15, when the apostle Peter, working great miracles, Peter was doing great things, he was, he was healing people, and the word was getting out, and people were bringing their sick, and their demon possessed, and laying them on the side of the street when they knew Peter was coming by, in hopes that even the shadow of Peter would cross that person, and they believed in their hearts that somehow the power of God would touch. And true enough, God honored that imperfect faith, even with superstition. That's what's going on there in Acts chapter 19, verses 11 to 12. But you see, not only does God use His power to authenticate His message and His messenger, but God's superior power exposes the evil imposters I was telling you about. This is nothing new, not even in the first century, but even predating the first century. You remember the book of Exodus? You remember when God sent Moses to Pharaoh and told him to tell Pharaoh to let my people go? God sent Moses with certain power. It was God's power, but Moses had the ability to work that power. So he walks into the presence of Pharaoh, and what does he do? Throws down his staff. The staff turns into a snake. Everybody's, whoa. <laughs> But what did, what did Pharaoh's magicians do? You remember? They imitated it. 
Using demonic power that they certainly had access to, they were imitating Moses' miracles so as to detract away from the very source of the power, the message of the messenger. Well, in the city of Ephesus, being a very dark and pagan city, rampant with diabolical, demonic activity, and, and, and immoral religious practices, superstition that just ran the gamut, there were itinerant exorcists. Not itinerant preachers, but these guys made a living by going around and pretending that they had the power to throw out, cast out demons. The only problem is the deceived people didn't realize that they were working in cahoots with the demons. The demons are saying, yeah, cast us out. <laughs> then people will think that you have something and, and, and then we can counter Paul's message. Or however they did it. Most of the times these, these exorcists would go around, they would borrow, you know, ter- terms, uh, names, label, anything to make their incantation sound believable. And they would go through these, all these elaborate incantations, throwing in these, in these names, sometimes even biblical names, sometimes Old Testament names, just to give it some authority. You know, you know, oh, by the name of Abraham and, and da da da, we cast out this demon. So here they come, seven sons, seven brothers, seven sons of, of priests by the name of Sceva. The, the Bible doesn't tell us anything else about, we don't, he certainly wasn't a high priest. We don't even know what kind of a priest. But anyway, supposedly Jewish sons of a priest. And it's just interesting. I think Luke intended some humor here. So enjoy what Luke is telling us. And Luke always gets the details. In verse 13 he says, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, Now listen to what they say to this demon-possessed man. We adjure you by the name or by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. So that gives us a clue right there. They had no idea, no clue who Jesus even was. But they heard Paul make reference to Jesus. So they're trying to incorporate the name of Jesus into their incantation. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus, I know. And folks, the scriptures full of illustrations of demons knowing they knew all about Jesus. He didn't have to introduce himself to any of the demons he encountered because most of the time they said, "Oh, Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the Holy, uh, high, high God, we we know who you are." Oh, they knew he, this demon knew who Jesus was. So you know, Jesus, I know, and. I know. The demons knew about Paul. Certainly was no surprise there. But I like what he says. He looked at them and says, but who are you? Coming in here and you're going to cast me out? (laughs) Duh! And I think God just uses the contrast between the real and the fake. And in doing so, He did it at the embarrassment of some. And you'll see what I mean here. Look at verse 16. Then the man in whom the evil spirit was, was leaked on them, overpowered them. Now this is seven against one, okay? But when you're demon possessed, you got, you got supernatural power. He overpowered them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Not only did he beat the stuffings out of them, but he stripped them naked and ran them out into the street. That probably did a, a number on their business, I would say. Well, the word did get out because look at verse 17. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus. But look at what God's doing. Even with, even with these exorcists, even with these fake exorcists, God is still at work because even, you know, the, the superior power of God exposes the evil apostles at the embarrassment of these fake exorcists, but at the expense and revival of others. Look at verse 17. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Oh, listen, the word is out. If you don't have the name of Jesus Christ, you don't have the power source. There's something powerful, greatly powerful about this name of Jesus. But look at verse 18. Folks, here's a revival. You said, but the church just got started in Ephesus. It's an early church. These are new believers. Guess what? Salvation is a progressive process. 
And they indeed come to know Jesus Christ. They had put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But guess what? They were still living compromised lives. How do we know that? Because they were still dabbling in black magic and magical incantations and things like that. Like some of the Christians you'll find in churches today that want to know about your horoscope and your signs and, you know, and into uh, astronomy. And, you know, I know I'm not stepping on any toes here. People ask me, what sign are you? I say, whoa, the cross. <laughs> you know, that's, that's my sign, brother. Okay. So, but look, look what it says there. In verse 18, And many who had believed, so the Christians, came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. You're talking about a book burning. Anything related to black magic and the occult, they were dealing with it in a very drastic way. And folks, let me tell you something. It cost them. There's a revival going on in the church of Ephesus And it it was costly. How do we know that? Because Luke never misses the detail. He went on to tell us. And it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. That's about 50,000 days of labor. These were not cheap articles and, 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 and things that they had to practice their pseudo magic, if you will. And, and it was costly, but they were burning it as a sign of their repentance. And look at the response in verse 20. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Let me tell you something. The church of the 21st century, the church today, is in need of genuine revival, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not talking about your average dog and pony show where you get a flashy preacher to come in all polished and everything and get some high octane music and everybody gets hyped for about three or four days and then they go back to living their same old sinful lives. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what the Bible describes as revival where the Spirit of God comes mightily upon the people of God such that they are keenly aware of the presence of sin, any sin. And begin to be broken over that sin. They begin to confess their sins. Let me tell you something. Revival is much needed. Revival is essential to the life and the future of the church. But let me tell you something. Revival is costly. It was costly then. It cost them the things that they had to separate out of their lives. Listen, your relationship with the Lord, if it hasn't cost you something, I'll ask you, is it worth anything? Jesus said in Luke fourteen thirty three, you know, he was telling his disciples, so likewise, whoever does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. What are the things that 21st century Western Christians need to, to, to shed in their lives in order to experience genuine biblical revival? What kinds of things are God's people or people calling themselves Christians dabbling in? And what is it God wants to cut out of their lives that's interfering with their relationship with Him? It could cost some people maybe their social life. It could cost some people maybe their hobby. It could cost some people maybe their favorite little idol, if you will. The thing that detracts from them giving their undivided attention to God in prayer and studying the Word of God. Listen, if a revival is going to occur, it will cost something. The problem is so many people, so many churches are unwilling to pay the cost. Not these people, not these people, because they saw the real deal. Well, let's move on in chapter 19, look at verse 21. And I want you to see in, in verses 21 and 22, in the throes of all of this, Paul's life, I just can't imagine. He's got persecution on one hand, he's got opposition, he's got demons accounting him, he's got diseases thrown at him, he's got people arresting him, he's got people starting false rumors of God, he's got thrown into jail. Listen, Paul didn't live a boring life. But you know, all the things that were happening in his life didn't distract him from his mission. Never once. Because look at verse 21. Luke tells us when these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in his spirit when he passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. You see, Paul had already determined. In fact, over in Rome, let me just, and and Paul wrote to, to Rome while he was in Ephesus. He wrote to uh, or, or rather, while he was in Corinth. And, and Paul was writing to the, to the folks in, in Rome. He was letting them know his plans. And, and so in verse 22 of Romans 15, just listen to a portion of his letter. Paul says, for this reason I have also much, uh, have been much hindered by, from coming to you. 
For this reason, I have also been much hindered from coming to you. But now, no longer having a place in these parts, talking about Asia and Europe where he'd been ministering, and having a great desire these many years to come to you whenever I journey to Spain. I shall come to you, for I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way. There by you, if first I may enjoy your company for a while. Paul was already planning. The Spirit was already churning in his mind. Here the things were going on around him, and, and yet he was still focused on moving ahead, moving ahead. And so as we, as we look here at the riot part of Paul's life, Understand that greed plays a key part in this. Pride plays a key part in this. And you may not be an Apostle Paul. I may not be an Apostle Paul. We may not have a worldwide ministry or whatever, but I guarantee you, wherever you go, wherever I go, if you choose to stand truthfully on the Word of God, not only to profess it with your lips, but to hide it in your heart and to live daily by it, you had better believe you're going to encounter some opposition if you call yourself a Christian and everybody out there in the world, and I'm talking about the secular crowd, just loves you and think you're the best thing since sliced bread, then you need to stop and examine your testimony, brother and sister. Because something's wrong. Because, you know, even the Scripture says, listen, the world will hate you if you love the Lord. So, here we go in chapter 19, in verse 22. So, he's, uh, he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. Now, mind you, Paul's, you know, he, he is exposing, you know, the, the fakes. He's casting out demons. He's, uh, people are turning from idolatry and paganism. So, so Paul is creating quite a stir in Ephesus. So keep that in mind. And about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. They they didn't call it Christianity. They didn't have a title back then. Most of the unbelievers, you know, when you talk about Christianity, they just said, oh, it's the way, the way. Probably because they've heard so many people preaching and teaching about Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. They just called it, gave it the nickname, the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana or Artemis, Brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. At least he's honest. He wasn't doing it for religious purposes. He certainly wasn't doing it for spiritual edification. It was all about money. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul, has persuaded and turned away many people saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. And that's true wherever Paul went. Whether it was in Athens with all the idols there or to the Thessalonians at Thessalonica. Paul was always telling people, listen, these idols, they're not true God. You don't make God with your hands. So what he's saying was true about Paul. And no doubt it was having some impact upon the idol industry. Verse 27, so not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised. Now you're getting somewhere. Because see, you're talking about civic pride here. You see, the temple of Artemis or Diana, as, 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 if you will, was considered one of the seven uh, wonders of the ancient world. It was a tourist attraction. People came from all over to go and see this massive temple up on the mount and to buy these little silver shrines. It's like you go to Disney World. Y'all come out with your little Mickey Mouse ears and, you know, little trinkets and, and things. You know, so, so you prove, wow, I'm in Disney World. You know, you can buy them at the mall, by the way. But anyway, that's beside the point. <coughs> <coughs> this was having an impact on, on the civic pride. And, 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 and Demetrius knew this. In verse 28, and when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Now, I want you to see the anatomy of a riot. Because it starts out with Demetrius and a handful of craftsmen, that he works up into a frenzy, so that they're kind of just angry, mad. So now they start shouting. They go out into the public square. They start shouting. You know, and, and some of the people may be asking, what's this about? Oh, it's about that Paul, that Paul fella. 
He's creating, uh, he's trying to get rid of Diana. He's trying to destroy the temple. He's trying to get rid of the idols. And so, so just, just follow along the progression of, of the riot. As they're shouting, great is Diana of the Ephesians, verse 29. So the whole city was filled with confusion. Confusion, I want you to see that. And rushed into the theater, which is the largest uh, public assembly place, held about 25,000 people. So that's where the, the whole city would assemble if there was any real genuine need to do so. And so they rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and, and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's traveling companions. See, they're just grabbing up anybody that's associated with Paul. Now, now I noticed in verse 30, and when Paul wanted to go in to the people, the disciples would not allow him. Probably wisely so. He's probably going to get tarred and feathered. But, but Paul, see, Paul wasn't wanting anybody to take a fall for him. He was saying, look, I'll go, I'll talk to these people, I'll confront them, I'll preach, I'll do whatever I need to. But they said, no, 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 no. In fact, Luke picks up on the point in verse 31. Not only did Paul have the support of the disciples and the encouragement of the disciples not to go in, but there was a group. There were a group that says, then some, in verse 31, then some of the officials of Asia, and these were considered to be Asiarchs. They were, they were nobility. These were, these were men with influence. These were men that, that were tied into the cult of the Roman emperor worship, if you will. They had connections with Rome. They were, they were not your average run-of-the-mill citizens. These were, these were men of nobility. But they had befriended Paul, or Paul had befriended them. And they sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Verse 32, some therefore cried one thing, some another, for the assembly was confused and most of them did not know what they, uh, or why they had come together. See, that's, that's the nature. That's the nature of Ariah, is you work on people's emotions. You give them a half truths and you try to, you know, cause them to get caught up, get caught up in the moment and get caught up in their emotions and pumping up the, you know, it's very akin to what we saw happening across the nation. With that tragic event with the shooting of a young man in Jefferson, Missouri, the thing I couldn't help but notice, there was a common denominator in all of the riots. There was a handful of agitators. They were there just for the sake of stirring up the crowd and whipping up people's emotions. And so the Ephesians were shouting, great is Diana of the Ephesians, great is Diana, you know, and I thought about, you know, the, the, the chants of the, of the riots as they were tearing down buildings and burning businesses and, and doing all these destructive things. And they were, they were had their hands up and saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. Half of them probably didn't even know why they were out there. But they ripped up. You see, that's the, that's the nature of the human animal. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And this was going on right there in the city of Ephesus. There was a great riot that was breaking out and getting out of control fast. Look at verse 33. And they drew Alexander out of the multitudes. The Jews put in him forward. See, the Jews are thinking, what, whoa, there's a riot going on. There's a lot of, they're, they're, they're hot with Paul. You know, Paul, it's got, he's a Jew. They're gonna, they're gonna probably start associating us with this thing. We better make some kind of a statement. Who's gonna go up there before 25,000 angry, shouting mob type people in this riot? And, and say, oh, Alexander, you know? Some have speculated that maybe he was a Christian Jew or just a Jew that they were putting up there. And so they, can you imagine being Alexander? There's these people, they're, they're red hot with, with, with the anger and, and they're, they're out of their mind, you know, in emotional frenzy. And they prop him up there. I imagine he did a, a Jewish version of a porky pig. But as soon as the crowd found out he was a Jew, look at verse 34. But when they found out that he was a Jew, with all, all with one voice cried out for two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And this thing was getting ready to explode. But see, you may remember back in chapter 18 how God raised up a proconsul by the name of Gallio. When the Jews were dragging Paul in and wanted, had all these trumped up charges, and, and Gallio was bold enough, God, I believe, providentially put him in that position to tell, look at, the, look at those Jewish leaders and say, this man's not guilty. This, this does not warrant the attention of the civil court. And he threw the Jews out of that court. I, that, that got around. That made an impression on people. And I believe God in a divine and a providential way was raising up a man with some power and some clout that God would use to defuse this thing. This was not a believer. He just happened to be the most uh, influential leader 
in the city of Ephesus at that time. So let's take a look here in verse 35. And when the city clerk, he would be the equivalent of a mayor in one of our towns, our cities, okay? So he, he was the liaison, the go-between between Rome and, the, and, and Ephesus and that province were considered to be an independent province by the grace of Rome. They, Rome let them govern themselves. Rome let them run themselves. But, but, but the thing they, they did not want to happen was to have an uncontrollable riot break out because if there's one thing that Caesar hated was riots. Civic disobedience and, and disruptions hated it. So what would they do? Send the soldiers in, take over the city, control everything, and, and with an iron fist bring everything back under control. So this mayor, knowing that, it says he quieted the crowd. Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of, Eph- uh, of the Ephesians is temple guardian of great goddess Diana? And the image which fell down from Zeus, Zeus was the head god, and they believed that, you know, Artemis, the temple, there, there was a, an article, a, a divine article that Zeus had dropped down on the earth for them to worship. And they would fashion it into an idol, a sickening idol, by the way. It wasn't a beautiful sculpted woman. It was a ghastly looking thing, you know, a woman figure with many breasts and just all kinds of, you know, grotesque things to emphasize immorality and all. But anyway, they, they, they thought this thing dropped out of heaven. Most biblical scholars say it was probably a meteorite. There were a number of incidents where they, for people, you know, walking along, plowing in the field, shoo, boom, you know, ooh, Zeus is giving us a swine. <laughs> so, so, you know, he's trying to, he's trying to just bring them all together and, and say, you know, Diana's okay. Everything's all right. Look at verse 36. Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are pro-councils. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it should be determined in the lawful assembly. This is a reason in mind. This is a rational mind. You see the contrast between people worked up in a frenzy of emotions and not thinking and somebody that comes in and says, wait a minute, just think about this thing now. Well, he's not finished. Look at verse 40. Here's the crux of it. For we are in danger of being called in question by Rome for today's uproar. There being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Isn't that amazing? God raised up one person to be a spokesperson, gave him some wisdom and common thoughts and diffused. I just wonder, where, where, where are these men in the midst of all the social chaos that's going on in our country today? We could use some good, wise men. Okay, moving along. The riots have been quieted. Things are moving along. In verse... Chapter 20, verse 1. Talk about the resurrection. Paul is talking about moving on. After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to him, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Now when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed there three months. And when the Jews plotted against him, this is just a constant scenario repeating itself, the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria. Paul's plan was to sail from Greece, go back to Syria, and go to Jerusalem. He had plans to observe the Passover. And, 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 but you see, that was going to be thwarted by the Jews' plot. So when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So he's backtracking. But but there's a purpose behind this. And, and, and I won't go back and read it for you, but you go back to Romans chapter 15. In the, in the letter to the churches at Rome, Paul was writing to those Roman Christians and he was telling them why he was making his way back through Macedonia and, and retracking to all the Gentile churches where he had, he had started and, and encouraged. Because, see, Paul had a burden on his heart about the Jews in Jerusalem. 
They were poverty stricken. There was a plague going on at that time. And, 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 and they were, not only that, they, they were being persecuted and many of it lost their jobs. And, and so they were, they were without income and they were in, in bad shape. The, the apostles at Jerusalem had encouraged Paul possibly to consider some type of an offering. But Paul also understood because he had such a deep love for the church. He understood that Christians ought to take care of each other. That's a novel idea, isn't it? Instead of churches being their own little kingdom and building up their resources and, and, and making themselves fat in their bank accounts, they ought to look around and maybe consider brothers and sisters and missions and things like that that they could be a part of helping. So Paul understood the connectivity of the body of Christ. And so what he's doing, he's backtracking. He's gathering representatives from all the different regions where he has started these Gentile churches. And he's collecting an offering, a love offering, if you will, for the saints in Jerusalem. Listen, this would make a powerful statement. A powerful statement to the believers back in Jerusalem about the validity of the ministry to the Gentiles. And so we see this going on. And so in verse 4, And Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus, and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and Tychicus, uh, and Trophimus of Asia. These are all representatives. He's collecting as he's going. These men are going with him, helping him to collect the the offering. You know, Paul wrote from Ephesus to the church at Corinth, and he gave him notice. He says, "Listen, I'm coming your way." And just like the churches in Galatia on the first day of the week, I want you to collect the offering that I'm going to be taking with me along with your representatives back to Jerusalem. So he was saying, this is what I know God wants you to do. So he had given them you know, fair warning or, or heads up. And so they were now just on their way back to collect this. In verse 5, these men going ahead waited for us at Troas. In verse 6, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. In five days, joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. So they, they kind of have a layover there in Troas before they move further on the journey. Now, on the first day of the week, now I want you to note, Luke gives us here in Luke, in, in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, you'll, you have before you the first reference of what Christian worship was like in the scriptures. So, so take note, they gathered on the first day. They're not gathering on the Sabbath, as was the earlier tendency of some of the Jewish Christians. Now on the first day of the week, which would be Sunday, which incidentally was the day that Jesus was raised from the grave, uh, resurrection day. Now, and by the way, this if you, if you notice that in verse 6 it talked about the unleavened bread, Easter. And what's about to transpire is, is, is significant because Christians are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, now on the first day, verse 7, now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, that is the Lord's Supper, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Listen, I want you to understand. Paul loved the church. If, if it's, you don't get anything else out of the ministry of Paul, understand. This man, who was once the persecutor of the church, was pouring his life into the early church. Facing peril and, and, and hardship and disease and, and, and imprisonments and, and, and being stoned nearly to death. And Oh, listen, Paul was giving his everything. Pouring himself. That's why toward the end of his ministry as he's writing back to Timothy, he says, you know, my life has been poured out as a drink offering. But Paul wasn't asking for sympathy. He wasn't, he wasn't wanting attaboys. This was his heart. I love that passage over in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 and 8 where Paul is writing to the church at Thessalonica and he says, we, we prove to be gentle among you. And listen to the imagery. As a, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. He's writing to Christian men, grown-ups. That's all right. Paul says, we, we, we proved ourselves to be not to be harsh, but to be loving and gentle just as a nursing mother would tenderly nurture her little children. He says, because... We have a fond affection for you. He says, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our very lives also. Do you understand what Paul's saying? He said, if necessary, I'm willing to die for you. 
that you, the church, might thrive, may, may grow and advance the cause of the gospel. Paul says anything that... He says, because you've been very dear. You are very dear to our heart. So, so why should it surprise us that on the day before, most of us, if we know we've got an early morning boat or flight, we want to try to get to bed early, right? Not Paul. Let's have church. Worship. Goes into this place, the upper room of this facility is jam-packed. Paul's preaching till midnight. At least he got him out by 12. <laughs> but anyway, he's preaching, teaching, preaching. I mean, this thing is going on to, to, to midnight. Look at, and remember, Luke gets details. Everything detailed. So, so Luke says, And there were many lamps in the upper room where they, were, they gathered together. And in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. So those, those of us that, that have nodded at church, don't feel like you're alone, okay? I just warn you, don't sit in the window when you do that. We'll see why. He, he was overcome by sleep. Some, some say because so many lamps burning, it was using up the oxygen, the room was getting a little foggy and smoky. He sat by the window, maybe get some breath of fresh air because he realized he was starting to fall asleep. What an embarrassment that would be to sleep on the Apostle Paul. But try as he made to stay awake, he was overcome by sleep. And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Now remember who's writing this? Not your average run-of-the-mill church member. Luke and Colossians, I think Paul calls him the beloved physician. Luke, hey listen, when the doctor says, you're dead. You, you know, he wasn't unconscious. He wasn't laying down there three stories below with the breath knocked out of him. Luke said, he'd be dead. <laughs> Maybe not just in that language. But Paul went down, fell on him. And that reminded me of Elijah and Elisha in First and Second Kings when they resurrected uh, these young men that had died. They, fell, they, they didn't just stand back or speak words. They fell full prostrate upon their bodies as if to put their life into the body of that deceased person. That's what Paul did. He didn't stand back. He fell right upon Eutychus, spread his body right up on top of him and embracing him. And then he said to those, do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Some said, well, Paul probably detected a faint heartbeat. Therefore, Eutychus really didn't die. Oh, yeah, he was dead. Paul wasn't saying, oh, I hear some life in him. No, no, Paul was making a statement of faith. Because he called upon the power, remember the supernatural power of God we've been talking about that authenticates the message and the messenger? Paul says, oh, oh, no, no, he's dead, but his life will come back. His life will be restored. Now, when he had come up and broken bread and eaten, in other words, they, they went on with the worship service. <laughs> I, I just wonder, could we do that at Cornerstone? If somebody fell out of the window and got... I, they probably said, folks, let's go home. <laughs> We've had enough. But, but they went back up, continued with the Lord's Supper, and here's the love feast, and eaten, and the love feast followed right after, and taken a long while, even until daybreak. So now I know some of you are thinking... We'll never get to the KNW before the Methodist now. Come on, wrap it up, preacher. I'm inspired. Paul preached all night. Okay? But, but we won't go all day, okay? I promise you. And he departed. And look at verse 12. And they brought the young man in alive. <laughs> That's good. And they were not a little comforted. I like how Luke puts it. And they were not a little comforted. What? They were elated. They were jubilant. They were patting old Eutychus on the back and saying, you were dead, man. You were laying down there just as dead as a frog in the road. You were dead, brother. I imagine they rode on that miracle for quite a while. And it got around town too, don't you think? Sure. Okay. Well, we're going to close up here. I got an amen somewhere. Maybe that was just a baby crying. Okay. Verse 13. Then when he went ahead to the ship and sailed to Assos, they're intending to take Paul on board. They would say, come on, Paul, get on, get on now. You've been preaching all night long. Look what it says. For so he had ordered, given orders, intending himself to go on foot. He said, no, you all go ahead and get on the boat. It's only a 20 mile walk. And some of these disciples from Troas, they're still asking questions. And I, you know, I'll just, what a guy. What, what a, don't y'all be looking at the pastoral team and saying, uh-huh, yeah. When are y'all going to walk 20 miles and teach like that? You know, okay? But Paul, you know, why? Why? Because he loved the church. He could never do enough. There was never enough that he could do to help the cause of the Christian church. So he just took those disciples, we assume, and they walked to the next port, 20 miles, and he's teaching and interacting with them along the way. 
And verse 14, and when we, when he met us at Essos, we took him on board. I imagine they probably grabbed him and said, come Paul, this is enough. Come on, get on the ship. And they came to Mytilene and we sailed from there. So basically, if you're looking at a map of, of the area around Ephesus, Asia, they're, they're island hopping. Back then, you know, this, this was not an ocean liner that went out into the deep blue sea. They, they kind of stayed pretty close to the shore as much as possible. And, and the next day they came up on Caius, and the following day we arrived at Samos and stayed at uh, Trogillion, and the next day we came to Miletus. Now look at verse 16, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia. That sounds funny, but see, Paul's trying to get to Jerusalem by the Pentecost. He wants to be there because he wants to take the offering and, and, and many people will be there at Pentecost and he wants to make it a great time of celebration. So Paul is pressing. He's looking at his watch. Not that they had one. But he's saying, you know, I really... Oh, if, I, if I go to Ephesus, I know what's going to happen. They're going to have fried chicken and baked pies and, you know, and, and, and they're going to they're expect me to stop and to eat and talk and, and I'll never... So he says, I, I'll go to Miletus. We'll stop there. It's only 30 miles from, from Ephesus and I'll send for the elders at Ephesus and they can come and join and I can interact with them one last time. And we'll see that in the next message. Oh, listen. What a powerful, wonderful example of the stewardship of a life. Paul, Paul was not just a good steward with his money. He was not just a good steward with his, with, with his gifts and abilities. Even his time. Paul made the most of every moment. And I believe he lived his life to the fullest for Jesus Christ to the very last breath he took. What a wonderful, powerful example for us. I'll close with this question to you. What kind of a steward of your life are you? Are you nearly as diligent with your life to make it count for that which is important, eternal. And that is Christ, the church, the gospel. Oh, I shudder to think how God looks at Paul. Well, you know, one day we're going to have to stand and mingle and fellowship with Paul. And he's going to tell you about these things that you read about. Oh, I was beat up there and I was thrown into prison there and I was whipped over here and I was shipwrecked over here and I was dead, stoned nearly to death. Yeah. And um, what, did, what did you do? For, for Christ? Mm. So as we look back, and I thank God for the accuracy of the record of the holy inspired Scriptures and how God used men like Luke to make sure we have this wonderful, perfect record of the workings of God in the hearts and lives of, of men and women of faith to inspire us and to encourage us and to instruct us. You may say, well, that was back in those old days. Biblical days. So, Jesus Christ is the same. Yesterday, today, yes, and forever. Does he deserve any less from us than Paul was willing to give to him for the cause of the gospel? Let's bow for just a moment.